Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff Ashley. I serve as one of the pastors here. As you turn to Psalm 15, which we will uh, be in, I want to tell you about something that I love, but uh, one of our other pastors, Zach, hates, and that is the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. It is uh, airplanes, all right? So I have loved flying ever since I was a kid. As an adult, there are certain things that frustrate me about the air travel experience, but as a kid, I loved the entire thing. And so uh, whenever I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Arizona, and so just about every summer, I'd go and visit them. But admittedly, air travel was a bit different back then. So pre-September 11th, does anyone remember what it was like to uh, fly maybe in the 80s or the, uh, the 90s, right? You'd show up 15 minutes before your flight and you'd still make it in time. And then a parent or a spouse or a friend or somebody could escort you all the way through security, all the way to your gate and wait with you. And then when you got on the plane, uh, if you were a kid, oftentimes you'd get to visit the cockpit and they'd give you these cool little plastic uh, wings and uh, they'd give you an actual meal that you got to eat with actual silverware. And, uh, and then you'd sit in a chair that was about two inches wider and you had about four inches extra legroom than you do today. And you could bring all kinds of stuff on board that you can't bring now. And so back when I was a kid, you could bring baseball bats and knives onto uh, to planes. That is not the case today, right? This, this uh, more cavalier approach uh, to air travel is certainly not the case if you were to fly today. Think about all the hoops that you have to jump through today. Who is it that can actually fly today? Well, someone who isn't on this secret TSA no-fly list, right? Someone who is willing to arrive a couple of hours early, uh, someone who is willing to pay for checked bags. Uh, you might even have to pay for your carry-on. And you have to comply with pat-downs, and uh, you have to remove your shoes and your jacket and your belt, and you have to put all your liquids in a three-ounce container in a one-quart clear Ziploc bag, and you can't bring a dangerous weapon like clippers or tweezers or something like that. Well, just as there are certain characteristics that you must meet in order to fly uh, in a plane, so there are certain characteristics you have to meet in order to abide with God. And that's what our passage is about today. That's what Psalm 15 is all about. But before we get into the actual text itself, I want to uh, kind of pre-warn you about two ways that you could possibly read this text that would really lead you astray. And so two dangers in reading this text, two ways of reading this text that you don't want to uh, apply. The first one is because the psalm is dealing with certain moral uh, responsibilities and qualifications and requirements, there might be a tendency to read this psalm uh, through a legalistic or a moralistic lens. In in other words, you might think, if only I will uh, actually do these things that this text is talking about, then I will merit or I will earn or I will deserve to dwell uh, with God. If I clean myself up and I meet all of these requirements, then God will accept me. So that's the first danger, as we'll see. No one lives up to these standards. No one except Christ. So if you read the text in this way, you'll either end up lying to yourself You'll be a hypocrite and you'll be uh, kind of boast in your own uh, arrogance and uh, you'll be proud or you'll be honest with yourself, recognize you fall short and this will leave you in overwhelming shame. So then the tendency is, okay, I don't want to do that so you just swing the pendulum all the way to the other end and say, because no one can possibly live up to all of these standards, 
that there is therefore no relevance in the text for me, that it doesn't really matter if my life is marked by these attributes. And that's the other danger in reading the text, that that though you will never fully exemplify the marks of godliness that are expounded in this psalm, there is nonetheless this biblical expectation, this responsibility that we have to pursue holiness as our lives are, are, are conformed to the image of Christ, as we are sanctified. So with that caveat in mind and these two different ways to avoid reading the text, let's pray and then we'll see what these marks of godliness uh, entail. Just ask you first to pray for, uh, for yourself as you come in with uh, maybe a, a distracted mind or heart, things that you have to accomplish or maybe you had a fight with your spouse or a kid or whatever it might be. And then will you pray for uh, those around you that the Lord would give uh, us collectively, corporately, as a church, that the Lord would give us uh, undivided attention and uh, undivided hearts. And then lastly, will you pray for me, for boldness and, and faithfulness to God's word. So Father, we thank you that you are good and you do good and you love us and you've given us uh, good gifts because you're a good father who gives good gifts and so you've given us of your word and I pray that as we open it that you would apply it to us by your spirit and we're grateful for the gift of the spirit and for the gift of your son and uh, so even as we see uh, him expounded ultimately in this psalm uh, that we would uh, worship him appropriately. We pray these things uh, knowing that you're good and you do good so we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, let's begin with the superscript. We've talked about these things before. It's a part of the, uh, the canon of scripture. And it says, a psalm of David, which could mean that this psalm is about David, but that's oftentimes not how the phrase uh, functions. And so most of the time, that just means that it's authored by David. And that's all I have to say about that because we've talked a lot about superscripts over the past few weeks. So let's look at verse one. Psalm 15, one says, O Lord, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Uh, As we'll see, this psalm is going to be structured in three sections. First, there's a question, then a response, and then there's going to be a promise. So let's begin with the question. David addresses Yahweh, that's the Lord God, and he asks this question. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? By the way, I say hill sometimes because I'm from Baytown, and so if I mispronounce it, I know the correct pronunciation, I'm just from uh, Southeast Texas, and so I pronounce words incorrectly. All right, so this is a form of parallelism here, these two different things. He says, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Uh, And so in case you don't recall what parallelism is, it's the dominant feature of Hebraic poetry of poetry within the Old Testament, within the Jewish scriptures, whereas most modern uh, English poetry is recognized by rhyme and rhythm and meter, Jewish poetry is distinguished by the presence of parallelism. And here, this parallelism exists in order to say the same thing in two different ways. It's called synonymous parallelism. In other words, sojourning in God's tent and dwelling on God's hill are not two separate things, but they're just two different ways of saying the same thing. So what are they saying? Well, both of them are referring to the dwelling place of God. He's talking about just dwelling with God, abiding with God. Before David's son, Solomon, built a temple for God, 
the Ark of the Covenant, where God was said to have resided, the Ark of the Covenant resided in a tabernacle, also known as a tent. But that tent is later replaced by the temple, and that temple is built where? Well, it's built upon the Temple Mount, which is this holy hill that's referenced here. So basically, David is asking not just who will live on this hill, but figuratively, the meaning of the question is who will dwell with you, O God? That's this question here in verse one. Who will dwell with you? Who can commune with you? Who can abide with you? In other words, there is this immediate assumption in the text of the holiness of God. That God is so holy that it demands this question, who could possibly dwell with you? I don't know if you've ever had a chance to be in the presence of someone really powerful, someone really respected, um, at least historically, we would say this, but like the Queen of England or the President or Burt Reynolds or something like that, right? There's, but there's typically this sense of decorum, uh, this sense of etiquette in order to uh, be around them that must be maintained. I learned about that in particular the summer before I turned uh, 12 uh, in 1990 at uh, an economic summit when leaders from all around the world gathered together in Houston, which is pretty close to where I live. My dad at the time was the head of, the, uh, head of photography for the University of Houston, and so he was tasked with photographing the event, including taking pictures of President Bush uh, the Elder. So he got this backstage full access pass. He even got to personally meet the president, have his picture taken with the president. The president gave him this presidential tie tack, which I think to this day is his most prized possession. It's not his kids or anything like that. It's that actual presidential tie tack. And, uh, and so uh, he just really enjoyed that whole process. But at one point, my dad was having a hard time getting the right angle for a picture. And so he made a comment about how he couldn't get a good shot, all right? So within seconds, this Secret Service agent is in my dad's face and he is glaring down at my dad and he sternly says, do not talk about shooting the president. To which my dad said, yes, sir. That was the end of that conversation. My dad didn't make that mistake again. All right, so there's certain things that you do and certain things you don't do around the president and that's what David is talking about here, but raised to this infinite degree. In order to approach God, there is a certain decorum or, or really a certain moral standard because God's infinitely holy presence changes even profane common space. After all, the temple or the tabernacle is just a temple, just a tabernacle. But God's presence changes profane common space into sacred space. And thus, that has ramifications in regards to who can enter. Like transitioning from a non-secure area to the secure area of an airport, there are certain qualifications one must possess, kind of like a boarding pass. And then there's other qualifications that one can't possess, like 3.1 ounces of liquid, right? Three ounces of liquid, perfectly okay. 3.1 ounces, you're a terrorist. You can't get on, Right? Similarly, but much more profoundly, in light of this cosmic gulf between sinful man and holy God, there are certain things you do and certain things that you don't do. So who can possibly enter? And the rest of the psalm is going to provide David's own answer to the question. So let's keep going. Look at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. 
So in a sense, these first three attributes that we're going to see here in verse 2 kind of summarizes all of the rest. Verse 2 is kind of like a Cliff Notes version of the rest of the passage. In order to approach God, in order to dwell with God, in order to have a relationship with God, one must walk blamelessly, do what is right, and speak the truth in his heart. So let's talk about walking blamelessly and doing right because those are actually synonymous as well. Now by this... By this language of of, of being blameless and doing what is right, David doesn't mean perfection. That's not what he's saying here. Yes, theologically, theologically we know one must be perfect in order to approach God, but that's not what blameless means as it's used throughout the Old Testament. In fact, many men were said to be blameless. Noah, Abraham, even David, who writes this, for example. David wrote this about himself in Psalm 18, Psalm 18, 23. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my sin. By that, David doesn't mean that he was sinless. In fact, anyone who's read the Old Testament knows of some pretty important sins that David commits, some really big sins from David's life. So what does he mean? Well, there's two ways to think about it. Think about a coin with uh, two sides, right? On one side is the idea of integrity. The person who is blameless walks with integrity and sincerity. Kind of like how the phrase above reproach functions in the New Testament, all right? To be above reproach doesn't mean sinless. It's one of the qualifications for church offices. Uh, it doesn't mean sinless, but it said means there's, there's a general pattern of obedience, a general pattern of holiness and faithfulness and confession and contrition, and that's one side of the coin. So whenever someone is said to be blameless, there is a general pattern of integrity, of godliness, of holiness. But on the other side of that coin, is the idea of forgiveness. The person who is blameless is also one who is forgiven of their blame. How so? Well, by justification by faith. Justification by faith isn't just some New Testament doctrine, right? In fact, when Paul wants to prove justification by faith, what does he do? He quotes the Old Testament. Look at Genesis 15, 6. Speaking of of Abraham, and he believed the Lord And he, that's uh, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Or Psalm 32, one through two. Blessed is the one whose transgression, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So the second aspect of blamelessness, the second side of the the coin, being forgiven by grace through faith is essential for understanding this psalm. Because this psalm doesn't really fit into any of the traditional categories or genres of psalms. We've talked about these before, that uh, within the psalms, the psalms is a particular type of literature. It, It is wisdom literature, poetic wisdom literature. But even within poetic wisdom literature, Uh, There are different types of psalms. There's lament psalms and there's penitential psalms and praise psalms and so forth. Uh, But this uh, particular psalm doesn't really fit into any of the traditional categories. Instead, most scholars believe that it functioned as what's called an entrance liturgy. An entrance liturgy, which would be recited by those who are approaching the temple in order to offer sacrifices. In other words, as you're ascending up the hill in order to uh, give sacrifices to the Lord God, you would recite this to yourself over and over. And so some scholars even think that this was kind of like a call and answer password. You get to the gate of the temple, the priest would be there at the entrance of the temple, and then he would ask, who can enter? Who can sojourn here? Who can dwell here? And the worshiper would then recite this formula. And in doing so, 
the worshiper would inevitably realize that he doesn't measure up, that he isn't perfectly blameless, that he doesn't always do what is right, that he doesn't always speak the truth. And uh, it's then in that spirit of humility and contrition that he enters the temple. But here's what's really fascinating about this, right? Why does he go into the temple? What do we do within the temple, right? So this is where we need to get our idea of church out of the the concept of what it's like to go to the temple in uh, ancient Israel. And so whenever you go into the temple, you don't just simply sit there while someone preaches to you. You go into the temple in order to offer sacrifices. You offer sacrifices and you worship. Now, why do you offer sacrifices? Because you yourself are insufficient. Because you yourself are deficient. Because you yourself are not blameless. So even in reciting this, there is this sense in which your heart is prepared in humility and contrition and confession to recognize I need to offer sacrifices to atone for my sin. And then once you have offered sacrifices, uh, um, then you worship. You offer this sacrifice that God accepts as atonement for your sin and then he thus credits to your account righteousness. So blamelessness doesn't mean sinlessness but rather it means to be forgiven and in light of that, to be transformed. The man or woman who has really, truly experienced grace will evidence that grace in their lives by walking blamelessly and doing what is right. And not only that, but also by speaking the truth in their heart. What does that mean? Does that mean here that that you can lie with your mouth as long as you're honest in your heart? kind of to thine own self be true sort of thing. No, that's not what it means. Instead, it simply means that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So those who are truly righteous, those who are truly blameless, they speak with sincerity. Their lives are marked by honesty, by truthfulness. They're not double-tongued. They're not hypocritical. And this emphasis on honesty will provide a segue to verse three as we begin to take these general principles and then kind of make them more practical. Again, verse two is kind of the cliff notes. It's the summary for the entire rest of the psalm. And so the, uh, the following verses are gonna kind of provide a checklist for us. Lest you hear this and you think, yes, I'm blameless. Yes, I do what's right. Yes, I speak the truth in my heart. So then it's going to get us a little bit more practical. And so let's see about that. Looking at uh, verse three who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And let's start with this phrase, does not slander with his tongue. That obviously goes hand in hand with what we just saw in verse two, that he uh, speaks the truth in his heart. If you're honest, then obviously you're not slandering because slander is a form of deception. It's a form of lying. It's a form of falsehood. All right, so that's part of what's going on here, but this passage could be saying uh, even more than that because this word slander is also sometimes translated as gossip. And that, that translation would work here as well because these two vices, gossip and slander, they go hand in hand oftentimes. They're different and there is a distinction and we'll talk about that shortly, but they often overlap. In fact, you see them in various lists together in Romans and 2 Corinthians. You'll see slander and you'll see gossip listed together in various uh, vice lists in the New Testament. But look at this passage in particular in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 28, all right? You don't see the word gossip or the word slander, but you see both of those concepts here. A dishonest man spreads strife. That's slander. 
In a whisper separates close friends, that's gossip. So slander and gossip are often found together, and yet each one of us individually might find ourselves wrestling with one more than the other. For instance, it's much easier for me to not slander than it is for me to not gossip. I don't generally have a longing to slander others, but I do feel the weight of temptation toward gossip, just if I can be honest with you. What's the difference between the two? Well, slandering presumes falsehood. In order for something to be slander, it has to be false, but gossiping could be true. So gossip isn't uh, distinguished on the basis of what is said, but rather who it's said to. And the fact that gossip can be true is the very reason that gossip doesn't feel sinful. In fact, Sometimes it feels righteous. And sometimes we convince ourselves it's righteous. Like when we disguise gossip as prayer, right? You ever heard this before? Hey, pray for Lisa. Bless her heart. Her marriage isn't doing well. Did you hear about what Fred did? Let's pray about that. All right, this is a form of gossip that's disguised as righteousness, but it's not righteous. Sometimes gossip feels good, but it's not good. Scripture calls it sin. It isn't motivated by a love of neighbor, but rather a love of self and the approval of others. It's a form of doing evil to a neighbor or taking up a reproach against a friend, as verse three says. So let me give you this good general rule of thumb. Never about, always to. Never about, always to. Don't talk about others, talk to them. There are a a very limited case of uh, rare exceptions, but in general, you should always make every effort to go directly to the source. But this is really countercultural. Most of Twitter and Facebook is just a form of gossip. And church culture is no different. It should be, but it isn't. We have slander, we have gossip, we have betrayal. All of these things exist within the body of Christ, though they're completely incompatible with godliness. Some of you have heard the story before. Whenever I first started at Parkway, there was this rumor that spread around that I had baptized my daughter who was a few months old. Now, anyone who's ever talked to me about baptism knows that I am one of the most strong opponents of paedobaptism in the world. If anyone would have asked me, they would know I do not think that paedobaptism is baptism. And yet no one talked to me, no one asked me, no one apologized to me, or whatever it might be. There was no talking to, it was just talking about. What we see here in verse three is that though we desire to separate our vertical relationship with God from our horizontal relationship with others, that just isn't possible. There is something about evangelical Christianity over the past 50 years, 100 years, something like that, that really wants to take this relationship and divide it from this relationship, and that isn't possible biblically. In fact, there is a sense in which our relationship with God is affected uh, by our relationship with others. Not soteriologically, it's not like you lose your salvation if you treat people mean or something like that. But those who really love God will love others. Those are intended to be inseparable, indivisible. And so we see this in a number of places in Scripture. I'll just give you three examples from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All of these uh, passages are pointing to this inseparable relationship between your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Those who are in good relationship with God will bear fruit in their relationship with others. The vertical is going to imply the horizontal. So scripture is going to constantly keep us from dividing our relationship with God from our relationship with our neighbors, our brothers, one another. Those who love God will also love others, which is why this is the great commandment. And if you love others, you won't gossip about them. You won't slander them. You won't take up a reproach against them or do any such evil against them. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Verse four, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Let's begin with this contrast between the vile person and those who fear the Lord. Now, obviously, we already talked about this before. If blameless doesn't mean sinless up above, then vile here doesn't just mean anyone who sins. There's a sense in which we're all vile, but that's not what David means here. The word translated vile is elsewhere translated as trash or scum, something's to be rejected and scorned. So this isn't just talking about everyone who sins, which is all of us, but rather a particular subset of all sinners whose lives are marked by unrepentant, habitual, intentional, high-handed sin. And scripture says that this person should be despised or rejected. So I want you to think for a second this horrible thought. Think of the way that you feel toward the coward who beats his wife. Think about the way that you feel toward the pedophile who preys upon the weak. Would you tolerate such sin? Would you accept such sin? Would you say, oh, that's okay? Of course not. And that's what David is talking about here. Does this mean, though, is what David is saying here, that we should avoid our non-Christian neighbors and co-workers and family because we despise the vile person? No, it does not. That's not what he's saying. Look at 1 Corinthians. We'll actually uh, start preaching through this uh, next year, so maybe a year from today we'll be in uh, this very passage. But chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verses 9 through 12, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then notice what he does. He clarifies that. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? By the way, the answer to that is yes. So Paul is telling the church to reject, to scorn, to despise certain vile persons. But who are those people? Paul says it's not talking about just sinners in general. It's not talking about unbelievers. He explicitly says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, but rather he means so-called believers, those who profess to be brothers and sisters and yet persist in unrepentant, habitual, high-handed sin. By the way, we just read a minute ago from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus tells us not to judge. And then Paul tells us here explicitly that we are to judge. Is that a contradiction? What do we do with that? We actually wrote a blog on that about when we are to judge others and when we are to not. 
Uh, we posted it a few weeks back, so you should uh, read that if that sounds confusing to you. But David's point in Psalm 15 is that the godly do not excuse or condone those who arrogantly sin, but instead that they honor those who fear the Lord. In other words, the vile is distinguished from the godly on the basis of fear of the Lord. The vile person in David's vocabulary is vile precisely because he doesn't fear the Lord. You see, both the godly and the vile, both of those groups sin, but only one fears the Lord. And thus one walks in confession and contrition while the other does not. Let's keep going. What about this phrase, swears to his own hurt and does not change? What does that phrase mean? You might be tempted to read that at first, kind of like a trespassers will be shot sign. Like if you're at Dan Jones' house, right? Trespassers will be shot. Um, if you trespass, then you will be shot. So what's the idea there? Well, the idea there is to give this warning and that is to say, don't trespass. That's the idea. Trespassers will be shot means don't trespass. So you might say that's what swearing to your own hurt means. That, uh, that David is basically saying, if you swear, you will necessarily be hurt, so don't swear. And if you uh, think that's what it means, you would probably then uh, note that Matthew and James both seem to prohibit swearing any oaths at all. But is that actually what this means? Well, no, the problem with that is both Paul and Jesus himself and even the triune God all swear oaths. So James and Jesus aren't really prohibiting all oaths and neither is David here. Instead, they're condemning reckless or hypocritical oaths. It's akin to kind of crossing your fingers while you make the oath. You know, you have your fingers behind your back and your fingers are crossed. You don't really mean it. You think that when you swear by heaven, you're not obligated to keep your word because you technically just swore by God's dwelling place and not God himself. This reminds me of whenever I was a kid, all right? If I pinched my sister, she said I thumped her, what would I do? I would passionately defend myself. I'd plead my innocence, why? Because I didn't thump her, all right? And I would do that until my parents learned to ask more precise questions, like in any sense whatsoever did you touch her? Because that's the real point. The point isn't whether it was a pinch or a thump or a push or a hit or whatever it might be, and as a child, I love this game of linguistic gymnastics. By the way, as a parent, I don't think it's quite as clever and fun when my daughter does the exact same thing to me. But my point is that God isn't fooled or pleased with our semantic wordplay. So this passage isn't saying trespassers will be shot. It's rather saying enter at your own risk. You can enter, but only after counting the cost. Likewise, you can make oaths. You can swear in this sense but count the cost. The point isn't that the godly never take oaths, but rather that they're marked by a commitment to honor their oaths, even when doing so comes at cost. Notice that phrase, swears to his own hurt. This too is uh, hugely countercultural today. Think about all the opportunities for us to not be faithful in the things that we said we would do. For us not to be faithful to our commitments whether it's uh, small examples like canceling plans that you had made when some bigger, better deal comes along, or even bigger things like divorce, which also involves a perceived bigger, better deal. In our culture, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of inconvenience, and we're out. That's the cultural standard today. Keep your word if it's convenient, 
if it's comfortable, but not if it costs you. Notice the contrast with what it says here. He who swears even to his own hurt. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do everything you would said you do, no matter what. There's a story in the book of Judges about a man named Jephthah, all right? You might be familiar with that. It's a tragic example of that kind of wooden literalism. Most of the stories in the book of Judges are not stories that we should emulate. Instead, they're, they're warnings to us. So the story of Jephthah ends with him sacrificing his daughter because of an oath that he had made. So that's not an example that we want to imitate. Obviously, there could be all kinds of extenuating circumstances that would justify you not sticking out a particular commitment. You get sick, so you can't go to the thing that you said you would. You get laid off. You're in a car accident, whatever it might be. The point isn't that you always do exactly what you say you're going to do, but that you have a commitment as far as it's possible for you to keep your commitment. That your word is a bond that's not easily broken. That others can rely upon you without having to get you to pinky promise or swear on your mother's grave or whatever it is. So are you the kind of man or woman that people rely upon and trust? Are you? Are you the kind of person that keep your commitments even when doing so causes inconvenience or discomfort? Even when it costs you when it costs you time, when it costs you effort, when it costs you money, when it costs you reputation, whatever it might be. Are you the kind of person that when you swear or when you promise or when you say you'll do something, that you do it? Or are you driven more by comfort and convenience and preference or some other selfish motivation such that you're not really trustworthy and dependable and reliable? One more verse, verse five who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So here we have two final prohibitions and then one promise. The two final prohibitions are charging interest and bribes. Let's start with uh, interest. The Old Testament says quite a bit about loans and loans with interest. For instance, for instance, loans would be forgiven every seven years. In the year of Jubilee, you would have to just repay, uh, you would just forgive the loan. And if you took something in pledge, that's, uh, that was a necessity for someone else. Let's say you took their bed or you took their coat or something like that. You had to return it every night. And it also forbids charging interest. At least it does forbid charging interest to a fellow Jew. In, act, uh, 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 in, in, in honesty, you could uh, lend money and expect interest in transactions with foreigners, but not with those of your fellow countrymen. All right, so Deuteronomy 23 talks about that. Now, for most of church history, what the Old Testament in particular says about uh, interest and these uh, prohibitions against uh, charging interest to your fellow Jews have been interpreted as saying that charging any interest of any kind, which is called usury, that that's completely prohibited. However, as uh, culture and economic theory has changed, so is the application of this biblical ideal such that most theologians, most pastors, most scholars today think that the Bible isn't forbidding all interest whatsoever, but rather certain kinds of interest. For example, interest which is excessive or predatory. So we have historical records from the biblical, biblical era of uh, different cultures uh, uh, mentioning interest rates of 33 to 50% or something like that. So what we see regarding interest theologically is similar to what I think the Bible says about debt. Scripture generally has this really negative view of debt within the context of the ancient world, 
But as the economy has changed, as culture has changed, the church has had to kind of rethink the way that they think of debt. Some debt is bad. For instance, going into debt for strictly materialistic purposes, just so you can have the nicest car, or the nicest clothes, or the newest piece of technology, or overextending yourself or something like that would be bad. But not all debt is inherently bad. Take that, Dave Ramsey, right? So you can buy a house, right? I mean, you know, most of us would never have the opportunity to be able to save up $300,000 for a house or whatever uh, it uh, might be. So to uh, borrow money to expand your factory or to purchase a house or something like that would seem to be an appropriate type of debt. So I think the, the Bible's saying something similar when it comes to interest. It's not for, forbidding all interest whatsoever, but it is instead a particular type. We need to understand the Bible gives commands within particular contexts but then we have to figure out how to apply those commands whenever we're in vastly different cultural contexts. Not only culturally, but economically and so forth. The point of this pro- prohibition of interest is both to guard against greed and then also to protect the poor and vulnerable in society. Where do you typically see the most check cashing businesses and loan sharks and so forth? It's in lower economic uh, areas of the city. It's in those with more oppressed socioeconomic conditions. It's the impoverished. And the, why is it? Why is it in lower income communities? It's not to help. It's not because loan sharks just really love the poor and really want to help them. The reason is to pro- profit off the lack of options that are afforded to the impoverished. And David is saying here, on the other hand, that godly doesn't unduly profit off of the pain and sorrow and unfortunate circumstances of others, but is rather charitable and generous. And because he's not marked by greed, neither does he take a bribe. Notice that phrase, a bribe against the innocent. We talked about this last week in theological equipping class, that there's this fundamental and important distinction between justice as the Bible uses that term and justice as the world uses that term. Everyone's talking about justice, but depending on your definition, you might have a different concept of justice entirely. As we talked about, uh, when, when we talked about this last week, one of the main challenges of theology is simply defining our terms. This is huge in contemporary culture. Just think of how the words are, uh, of how many words are constantly redefined in this day and age. Words like marriage, which no longer simply refers to one man and one woman, Words like toleration and love. Even words like men and women, which is why male Olympic athlete Bruce Jenner can win Woman of the Year awards, right? There's a different definition now for what constitutes a man or a woman according to our culture. Before we do biblical deeds, we must have biblical definitions as we've talked about. And so biblical justice is marked by certain attributes like truth, impartiality, proportionality, and directness. And things like bribes, pervert and distort justice. In fact, they result in injustice. Look at Deuteronomy 16. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Or Exodus 23, seven through eight. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked and you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in 
the rights. You see a similar sort of idea there, a bribe against the innocent. By the way, if you want to see an application of this passage today, don't just think of some like mafia godfather bribing a judge for his murder trial or something like that. Yes, that's bad. Yes, that's a bribe. But also think of these more subtle forms. I doubt many of us in this room are bribing jurors to get off of our murder trial. But many of us in this room might be guilty of more subtle forms. People don't want to be fired. Companies don't want to lose business. So they refuse to stand up for the innocent. When persons are assumed guilty before the evidence is weighed, when people are unjustly fired, when companies capitulate to mob pressure for the sake of the bottom line, those are all examples of taking a bribe against the innocent. So the unjust are influenced by something other than the truth, by something other than justice, by the mob mentality or by money or something like that. But the godly person is moved not by greed, not by partiality, not by prejudice, but rather by biblical depictions of justice and mercy. So now we've seen the, the question who shall sojourn with the Lord, who shall dwell with God, who shall have res- uh, acceptance uh, by God. And we've seen the answer, the godly, those who are forgiven, those who are walking in integrity and holiness. But what of the promise? It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. By the way, this is not a promise that there will be no suffering. That's not what this passage is saying whatsoever. It's not saying that the storms won't come and the rains won't fall. That's called the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel whatsoever. That's not the Bible. So the psalm isn't saying that there won't be tribulation or suffering for the godly. In fact, the New Testament promises tribulation and suffering. Instead, it's saying that the tribulation and suffering will not ultimately win. That's what it means here when it says the godly will never be moved. They won't be moved from where? They won't be moved from the tent of the Lord on the holy hill. In other words, there's this eschatological hope, this end times hope, and this promise of dwelling with God even in the midst of the storms and forevermore. Now, as we read this passage, we do so knowing that there's both good and bad news for us as we read it. The bad news is that this passage doesn't perfectly describe you. You're not perfectly blameless. You're not perfectly just. In fact, in various ways, you're vile, you're sinful, you're wretched, you're depraved, you lie, you slander, you gossip, you break your word, you're greedy, you don't fear the Lord. Me too, by the way, not just about you, right? That's the bad news. If we stop there, your chances of sojourning in the temple of God or dwelling on his holy hill are 0%. But obviously we don't stop there because there's also good news and it comes in two parts. First, that there is one who has perfectly fulfilled this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh, he is blameless. And not just in the sense that you and I could be blameless, in the sense of walking with a general pattern of faithfulness and being forgiven. He is blameless in the sense that he has no blame whatsoever. He has no blemish whatsoever. He is sinless, he is pure, he is perfect. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He is not greedy or selfish. So who shall dwell with God? The answer is Christ. Christ alone is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the requirements of this passage. Which brings us to the second part of the good news. And that is that we remember that this psalm is part of an entrance liturgy. 
as one enters the temple complex. Just like those Jewish worshipers, we too approach a temple. We don't approach a literal place though, on a literal hill, but rather we approach a person. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, who has tabernacled among us, who has dwelt among us, who is for us our temple. So as we approach Christ, we are asked this question, who can dwell with God? And there are two wrong ways to answer that question. The first is to think, I'm clean enough, I'm good enough, I'm holy enough to dwell with God. So I will thus enter the temple by virtue of my own merits. And that's pride. That's pride, that's self-righteousness, and the problem is it leads to condemnation. The other improper answer, though, is to recognize your depravity, to recognize your insufficiency, to recognize you don't fulfill this, And as you approach Christ, as you approach the temple, you turn around and you go home without entering the temple. You're too overwhelmed by shame. And that too leads to condemnation. Instead, we should answer the question like this. Who can sojourn? Who can enter the temple? I cannot enter. I cannot enter because of my merits or my purity or my holiness but I can enter because of Christ. And so we enter the temple by faith. And as we enter the temple, we do so not to offer sacrifice, but because of the sacrifice that has already been made for us. And so we enter, and then what do we do? We worship. So let's pray as we prepare to worship by taking of communion and singing uh, as an act of worship in response to this good news, the gospel of Christ. Father, I thank you for your grace and, uh, and mercy. I thank you that though none of us in this room can enter the temple, can enter your presence, can have relationship on the basis of our own merits or worth, that you have made a way for us in your son. And so I pray that that would not just simply terminate in our minds thinking the right things, but would also affect the way that our hearts and hands go forth and love and serve others. Lord, that we would not divide the vertical from the horizontal, but we might be people who uh, really seek to live blamelessly and do what is right and speak truth in their heart and not take bribes and not uh, profit off of others' uh, circumstances or whatever it might be, Lord, that we would be a people that were marked not by greed and pride and lust and, and selfishness, but by love and mercy and grace and compassion. Pray these things because you're marked by these things. So we wanna look like you and so we pray this with hope and expectation in Christ's name, amen.